0: Welcome to The Mama Sisterhood. I'm Heather Evans. When my twins were born at 24 weeks gestation, I began to think about the uniqueness of each of our motherhood journeys. I also began to understand the importance of education and support from other moms, no matter how different our lives may be. Each episode will highlight one mother's journey and the lesson she has learned on this crazy path we call life. I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to The Mama Sisterhood. Welcome back to the Mama Sisterhood. I have Casey Wolf here today. Welcome, Casey. Thank you for
1: having me. I'm excited to share with you guys today.
0: I'm so glad you were able to talk with us. Uh, I'm going to let you kind of introduce yourself a little bit more. So can you tell us who you are, where you live, maybe a little bit about your family?
1: Yeah, Um. like you said, I'm Casey Wolf. I um, live in Greenwood, Missouri. Um. I am about to turn fifty. Um, I don't mind saying that. I obviously, am a, <laughs> I'm a widow, um, and I'm pretty proud to be fifty. I don't feel. I mean, I feel like there's not a lot of people that get to be fifty, so yay! I celebrate that. So every I think, year is a gift. So I'm happy about that. I, I think um, that's
0: great. I love the way you look at that.
1: I I do. I'm I'm happy about that. So I feel like everybody should celebrate their age because every year is a gift honestly. I agree. Um, yeah. Um I don't know where you want me to begin, but can I'm, you tell us about
0: your how many kids you have and um maybe how old they are now.
1: Um well I am I don't know where you start started my story, but I am remarried. Um so right now between the two of us we have eight children. <laughs> um I have eight kids and three grandkids. Um, right now, my, um, my biological kids, I have five. Um, I have um, three daughters and two sons. My oldest is 28. Um, and she is a nurse, a pediatric nurse. I have my next daughter is 24. And I have a granddaughter with her. And she is just about turn one. Aww. Um And she lives just a mile from me, so that's been fun because we get to babysit her a bunch. Um, My son is 22. He lives near here also. My other son is 19, and then my daughter um, that still lives at home with us is 15, and the other four that I mentioned before, they all live outside the house, so we only have one actually that lives at home with us still.
0: Wonderful. So I had reached out to you, Casey, because I feel like you have a very unique story in a lot of ways, um, and I wanted to bring you on here today to share about love, loss of a spouse, um, becoming remarried, you know, all while trying to parent much younger kids at the time, blending families. So can you take us back to back when Matt first got his diagnosis? Maybe how old were your kiddos at that time and sort of what your life was like at that time,
1: sure. Um, I met my husband in middle school. Aww. His name is Matt, and um, we got engaged our senior year in high school. Um, we got married um, when he was in college, his junior year in college. Um, I was told that I was going to have trouble having kids, so we started trying right away and got married or got pregnant on our honeymoon. So obviously, that wasn't a problem. <laughs> Um, we, um, had babies, boom, 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 um, and had always wanted to be a stay at home mom. So, um, I was very fortunate and blessed to be able to do so. Um, he was an engineer, um, and we moved to Kansas city and had always, um, lived here and raised a family. And like I said, I was able to be a stay at home mom and really just loved every minute of it. Um, you know, stay at home mom isn't I was never one of those, you know, every part of it is wonderful, uh, PTA mom volunteered for everything. It just wasn't my bag. I, I It was a hard job, and oh, yeah. uh, I, uh, I, I did what I did, and um, I loved what I did, but uh, I never was uh, um, beat the drum, run around the block, saying everything was rosy and stuff. Um, it was hard. Uh, but I, that's what I wanted to do. Um, so, and that's what we always wanted to do together. And our goal was always to um, raise this family and, um, be grandparents. That was our goal. Um, we were married, uh, for 21 years and, um, and just plugging away at it. And, um, when he was, um, 39 years old, He had struggled with headaches, um, kind of on and off his whole life and kind of got worse where, uh, for a couple, three months at a time, he had just struggled with nonstop headaches and sinus pressure and was stubborn and stubborn and stubborn and and had been on antibiotics thinking it was a sinus infection and Advil and Tylenol wasn't kicking it. And, um, you know, one day I just said, You need to go to the ER, you need to go to the ER. And he's like, No, 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 I'm fine. And in the parking lot of the hospital. So I told my high schooler, watched the kids. Um, I zoomed over there and I found him slumped over the wheel um in his pickup truck. Oh my gosh. And I knocked on the door and I was like, What are you doing? He's like, I head hurts so bad. I just couldn't even go in. So pretty much drug him into the ER. We rushed in there. I said, like, you've got to figure out what's going on. I never will forget the, I felt like I lost all feeling and everything from like my chest down. Like I lost all feeling in my body. I didn't, <laughs> didn't yeah. know what to do. And the only thing I could say is what do I tell my kids? Yeah. was the only response I could say.
2: Right.
1: And he didn't, <laughs> he didn't know what to say either. So uh, basically at that point, he just said, um, you need to go home and pack a bag for him because we need to get him in the ER or in an ambulance and get him to down to St. Luke's hospital and have them take a look at him. So yeah, yeah. that's when everything went upside down.
0: So at the that time, did you tell your older kids or any of your kids what was going on or did you go to St. Luke's next to kind of see if you could find out more before you talk to your kids or how did you manage that?
1: Well, I got on my phone and called my sister mm-hmm. who was a nurse and she lives a couple hours away and said, you need to come right now. You know, they said he's a brain tumor because I had kept her updated that he wasn't feeling well. I called my best friend. Mm-hmm. She was in town. You need to come to the ER and come pick me up.
2: Mm-hmm. I don't know what
1: to do. You know, kind of called the troops, called his family and said, everybody come. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Um, my best friend came to pick me up and, brought, um, and um, she actually called her husband, went, her husband went to my house and got the youngest of the kids, the mm-hmm. three littles, and got them out of the house nice. and took them back to their house to kind okay. of shield them from everything because I, I didn't know how to handle that right. yet. Right. The two oldest girls, the high schooler and the middle schooler were there when I got home. And I was frankly pretty hysterical and I wasn't ready for the little kids to see that. Didn't even know how to handle that um, with all the yeah. shock. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I told the girls that, well, the bigger girls, what was happening, you know, that they said that dad's got a tumor. He's got to go to the hospital. We don't know what was going on. They were old enough to kind of know. Mm-hmm. And they were there when I packed a bag and I said, you guys just need to hang tight and wait and see what's going on and wait till, you know your aunt and uncle get here and we figure out more what's going on and so wow yeah pretty much everybody kind of just shielded the mm-hmm. kiddos and took took them in places and
0: yeah that was great that you had kind of a tribe that stepped up immediately between family and friends and to just jump in and do what they could do to help you with with the kids absolutely so then you went to the other hospital Mm -hmm. And what was the progress of what they said there and then the treatment that he started? um, What happened then?
1: So um, there they did um, an MRI, which showed further detail. um, And they saw from there, the MRI showed like a necrosis in the tumor, which basically meant cancer because they couldn't really tell us right away. And then he had to have the craniotomy the next day and honest to be completely transparent. I was so unable to function and process at that point um, that I really have a hard time remembering what the process, how, what happened. Mm -hmm. And I was, that's one of the biggest regrets I had is because I was so unable to even handle myself and what was going on that I really wasn't able to be there for my kids at that point. So I have, give so much credit to my, my mother and father-in-law, my sister and my friends, because they really just stepped in for me and handled all of my kids and took care of all of that so that I could just be there with him. And he Mm -hmm. and I could just kind of absorb what was happening and process that yeah and that was one of my biggest regrets in the whole thing but everybody was very graceful filled for me and let me understand that um it took about 24 hours for us to just really take that in and then they came you know the next day and kind of just you know we never said the word cancer they never said the word cancer and said you know Dad's had headaches, they found something in his brain, they need to get it out, you know, to the younger kids, Mm -hmm. it's going to make him feel better, you know, they kind of was like, Okay, you know, I get that. Um, The older kids, you know, obviously saw everybody visibly upset, knew something was big, you know, after it was time to have surgery, and all that kind of stuff. The bigger kids we talked about cancer, and they understood. So,
0: so then after his surgery, then did he have to have any chemo or radiation, medication, anything like that?
1: Yeah. Um, after his, um, surgery, we, he had to have, um, chemo, um, a pill and it was like a 23 days on and one week off. He had radiation for, um, five times a week and then for six weeks. And then he was able to get on a clinical trial which was awesome. He was able to do that. And that was all Kansas City based. Um, so we were very thankful that we were in an area that had so much to offer. Um, he had, uh, and then after that MRIs every six weeks, we were also able to go to MD Anderson um, in Texas a couple times and have just like check in with them and make sure we were getting the best treatment um, possible and the best care. And we were following the best protocol that we could, have. Unfortunately, with the brain tumor, glioblastoma, um, there is not a lot of progress in what you can do or the standard of care is just the standard of care. They've not made a lot of progress to treatments or, you know, different types of drugs that are available to take care of that. So,
0: so when they did uh, the surgery, did they tell you, like, were they able to get the entire tumor with the surgery or...
1: So what's interesting with this type of tumor, which makes it so deadly. Um, and when they told us that it was cancer in the hospital, which was so devastating is that it is terminal. Um, they gave us, they told us it was 12 to 18 months life expectancy Uh is because this type of tumor, when it grows, it tendrils out into the brain, almost like an octopus tendrils. And so because it's the brain, they can't, they can get 90% of it, but so Mm -hmm. much goes out into the brain and it's a brain. You can't scoop out all of it. (laughs) And um, this type of tumor is super smart. It can outsmart the chemo eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can get a lot of it. You can't ever get all of it. And the chemo works for a while, but then eventually it learns how to outsmart the chemo and then it continues to grow anyway. So it's, one of those things where it's just a process of living for a while with it. Mm-hmm. And even like and I mean we just took it we just took it on the chin. I mean it was hard. I mean we were devastated, but we weren't gonna let it, you know, ruin us. And mm-hmm. we were gonna, you know, hit the ground running. Um, that's who he was. And um his energy and his spirit was something that we all really fed off of. And thank God he wasn't the type of person that was, he had never like laid in the bed and moaned and groaned in why need. And, you know, we really just took that energy and ran with it. Um, His faith was incredible. um, And we all had a really strong faith at that point, but um, I think his faith really led us through that. um, And that was really super strong. Um, And yeah, we uh, took that and really, moved us to make every day count. And we really started living like we always should have been living, which is, yeah, live every day as, as it should be, you know. Um, and thankfully when, um, you know, he, uh, started going through treatments and things like that, he it didn't affect him terribly um and we always said you know we're gonna we're gonna stay the course we're gonna live normal life we're gonna you're gonna be normal dad we're gonna do normal routine but we were 100 percent honest with the kids about everything i mean from the minute he got home we were like yes it was cancer this is what they did this is the scar Um, this is what the surgeon did. We read books about cancer. We talked about it. Um, we didn't really sugarcoat it. We never talked about the diet, the, the 12 to 18 months because that's a statistic and our faith is, you know, it's up to God. I mean, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, it didn't mean anything for us to say that because he could get hit by a bus tomorrow, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. So for us, it was like, you know, it didn't, I get, we understood the statistics, but you know, what's the point, I guess, in us saying that, um, we still told them, we expect you to still do your chores. We Mm -hmm. still expect you to go to school and do your homework in the midst of this. Um, we expected them to keep their routines. Um, and again, we talked about how cancer wasn't going to, um, define our family. Um, we almost treated it like, like it was a bully because in a way, cancer came into our family as like this unexpected uninvited guest. We, it came into our family. It was always there. It was just like this new member of our family. It was just like, but it was like taunting and whispering and I was looming around, you know, and it was, it was like a bully, you know, it was, it was messing with your mind. It was messing with your thoughts. It was trying to drag us down. I mean, and it was, you know, distracting us and I was taking away the focus and trying to be negative. And it was always just fighting us. And, you know, we just really tried to fight that, you know, and I remember even just like, you know like laying in bed at night with him thinking like there's like three of us in bed it almost feels like mm-hmm. you know cancer is in the middle of us it's not just him and i anymore you know he and i sitting on the couch watching television there's always cancer there now it was just a different feeling um so we just really tried to have that mentality um with them and i i really felt like that you know that kind of helped the kids um, it wasn't a topic that we talked about constantly. It was there, but it didn't need to be the center of everything.
0: Yeah. No, um, I love the analogy of it as a bully. And I've never thought about, I haven't been in, obviously been in that situation. And so the way that you described, like there were three of you, that's really interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense.
1: It was How really we- challenging because like everything was new again, like going to the grocery store, yeah. everything like new perspective. I mean, it's just like when you have a baby, mm-hmm. <laughs> but different. Like, everything is new when you go to the grocery store because you have another baby, right? Everything is new when you go, you know, and do something because you have a baby. It's, it's it's way, you know, it's obviously a wonderful thing, but it's different. Um, and and it's hard, but um, as you just look, everything has a different lens to it, and then mm-hmm. everything the way everybody else looks at you is also different. And so mm-hmm. it's just such a shift.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but we try to keep it as normal as possible. But we always kept such a dialogue about it with the kids. Um, we wanted them to talk to us and we wanted we um, talked to them also. But we always joked and kept it really light and mm-hmm. made it really funny. Like, for example, he... <laughs> So he had titanium strips in his head where they closed the, the sutures and stuff. And so we called him the titanium cranium. Huh. Yeah. And so, and then we, you know, we, we, we just joked about it or whatever. And everything yeah. was funny. You know, we tried to make light of everything and joke about stuff or whatever and keeping humor and stuff, I think helped a lot. Um, yeah, And so we okay. took kids to doctor's appointments. Okay. to the oncology appointments, even the little ones, the eight-year-old, we took them to MRIs, even if we knew they may not turn out to be good and talked through them. The doctors were there. Um, we took them down to MD Anderson even, um, and then neuro-oncologists and stuff would answer questions. So, um, I mean, it was a part of our life and um, they were able to have that. And as hard as it was, I knew that, and I hated it, but I knew that this was God's plan for their life to have a parent experience this and whatever result that was going to be from that was supposed to be for them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, whatever result, the good or the bad, that was what was meant to be for their life. And they were going to learn something and grow some, grow in some way from that. So,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: but as far as like how we made it through the day to things, it was totally everybody in our tribe, the community. We had people, meal trains, we had people come over the lawn, we had people go just show up and drop off toilet paper at the door that I didn't even know who it was because we needed it. We had people carpool with the kids and, you know, driving the doctor's appointments. And yeah, it was just insane. My best friend was always there at the drop of the hat people would just show up at the door when I just needed it and didn't even ask for it and somehow people do. and you know people in our church were just phenomenal fundraisers and bracelets that they sold and t-shirts and I mean it was family and it was
2: it was unbelievable
0: oh I love to hear that I've I've interviewed a few um, guests who've been through some very very difficult things like this and I feel like that is one really wonderful light or silver lining that comes out of it is that when people are going through these devastating things, the amount of love that is shown to them and sacrifice and the amount of people that just show up, you know, just how can I help? What can I do? Like you said, people just drop things off and don't even want credit. That really makes you realize that there's still really good people in the world so it's it's good to hear that,
1: yeah. we spent um a lot of time talking to our kids about how people showed up mm-hmm. and recognizing the good that came out of this horrible situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and how other people blessed us and how much um, how horrible situation could end up with so being so wonderful like Mm -hmm. like I've said it before like that was probably how much I don't even know how I could this is I'm gonna now I'm getting all messed up but that was probably the most amazing time of my life Mm
2: -hmm.
1: the most horrible situation ended up being the most amazing time of my life like how can that even be
0: I, I see where you're going with that for sure, though. And I'm I can only imagine that you're yours, of course, too, but your children's that'll that'll shape seeing and talking to you about all these things these people did for you and the way they bless you. That's going to affect their entire future and what they do for others and how they're going to be inclined to do that for other people because they've been on the receiving end of it. So, yes. Yeah.
2: You know, and
1: and people in general are very, like, I don't want help. I'm not going to ask for help. I don't need help. And I, it was a really humbling time because I had to stop and say, you know, this is an opportunity to let somebody else be blessed by letting them help me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And. It was just such an amazing experience. And to let my kids experience that it was just such a bigger experience other than our little family, what we were going through to see it grow exponentially and have our eyes open to what was happening throughout and the messages that we got, you know, on Facebook and through caring bridge and people I had gone to high school with and how they had messaged me about how it was affecting them and how they had our story to somebody else that they knew and how that was, you know, and then for us to be able to tell our kids about how that was affecting, I mean, they're, you know, down the road, like that is how the whole experience just expanded into something bigger than just our little, and I don't want to say little grief, but our grief, Mm -hmm. how our grief could be healed because it was so much bigger than that. There was so much good that expanded out in such huge waves. Yeah. And that was the only way we could get through it is to see that. And even experiences just like this this is how grief gets healed, too, is knowing mm-hmm. that maybe somebody on the other end of this down the line hears something. And even if it just makes somebody feel better for a second or two, or it makes them hear something that's, you know, oh, yeah, I remember hearing this one time on this podcast and it makes them feel OK in their own heart for feeling whatever they're feeling. That's what makes it all OK. You know, that's what makes your experience worthwhile.
2: Yeah, Even if it's that, so.
0: that's beautiful. And I think you're absolutely right. And that's why I'm so honored when you and all the other guests are willing to come on and share your story, because. like you said, there may be someone out there who listens to this and this is exactly what they needed to hear today.
1: One of the other things that I um, really struggled with was um, dealing with my grief while the kids were grieving. Yes. In the midst of the early part of his diagnosis as well. Um, He went back to work five weeks after his diagnosis, which was great because he was feeling well. Um, while he was doing his treatment. Um, He needed his support group back at work. Um, And that's how he coped was just keeping busy and doing things, which was awesome for him. Um, But again, as a stay-at-home mom left me to, you know, take care of the kids and, you know, a lot of quite time at home to process and with them. Um, And it was still summertime at that time. And, you know, that's hard as a mom.
0: With Um, five, especially.
1: Yeah, Um, I um, learned a lot real quickly about myself, um, about what I needed to do um, in order to survive. Um, I think all stay-at-home moms really have to learn quickly what they need to do to survive. Um, And I just feel really passionately about speaking really truthfully and transparently and always have about stay-at-home moms' survival techniques. Um, I have always been one who has never (laughs) been the one on Facebook to say, it's a snow day, yay, the kids and I get to stay home and snuggle. I'm not that mom. I'm sorry, I just never happened. Like, oh my gosh, it's a snow day. Oh, they're home again. <laughs> I love my children to the nth degree. However, I love the routine of school and I <laughs> just yeah, appreciate school days. Um, so I'm my time at home alone. Um, maybe that's I have a five kid thing, but whatever. No,
0: <laughs> I totally, I totally understand. I only have two. And I was like, August 26th was our first day back to school this year. And I had that day in my head. <laughs>
1: Yes, when my fifth was born, it was like I wanted to be induced on July twenty sixth because she needed to meet that deadline so she could start kindergarten. <laughs> so I mean I love them, but I yeah, I yeah. Anyway, so I'm just very honest to say that um yeah, you gotta take care of yourselves, mom. It's, it's okay. I love the way that society is trending more towards that of right. moms being real and honest and raw and authentic and saying what they need. I yeah. really appreciate that um because when I was first early as a mom with my first it wasn't that. Um so anyway, um I really found out that I needed to let those tears out daily whether it was 5 minutes or 30 minutes and gave myself permission to do that. Um with my friends, with my husband, um, and even in front of my kids, that was okay. And it was okay to tell them I was sad and this is why, because I'm afraid, because I'm sad, because I'm, um, you know, because of whatever, this is how I feel. It's okay for them to see mom crying and know this is why, and she has feelings. Um, It was okay for me to talk to my husband about remarriage that it was important for me to talk to him about life after he dies. It was okay for me to talk to him about finances and death and practical things, even though he was the one going through, you know, the illness and facing death himself. Those were important things. um, And those weren't selfish things for me to do. Those were important things for me to do to survive. I had a friend who told me a very important phrase. I was really big on phrases and sometimes people aren't, but for me, like a mantra was really important. She told me just do the next thing. And for some reason that one really stuck when as women and as moms, we tend to do a thousand things at the same time, or at least in our brains, we do just do the next thing was really important um, when everything was swirling. That one really got me through. Um, I was just trying to talk about a new normal. It's okay. When everything was changing at once, um, just to say it's okay, it's the new normal. Um, For some reason, that phrase made sense to me. Um, It it was different, but it was also going to be normal, which kind of made it okay in my heart as well. I had to really focus on each moment and each day. Not that I was perfect at it or that it always felt good. But um, the other thing that really struck me was that (laughs) I worked really hard at remembering that there was no guarantees to begin with. Mm. That really helped me not feel sorry for myself or Mm. our situation. Yeah. Like, you know, my husband got brain cancer at 39 years old for me. Well, no, nope, I really never had any guarantees to begin with.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, none of
1: us do, you know, yeah. I, a lot of those kind of thoughts had to go over in my head time and time and time and time again. And, um, a lot of those things, um, really helped me. And so I think if, if someone was really, um, struggling with um some kind of crisis or trauma sometimes grabbing onto a some sort of truth mm-hmm. um whether that's a scripture or that's a phrase or um something like that sometimes that can just be really helpful if you can find something that makes sense to you that really just speaks to you
0: thank you so much for sharing those i feel like there's so many people out there no matter what they're going through that's hard that they could use one or more of those phrases and that could really help them cope with some pretty dark times so I appreciate you sharing all of those that helped you with us how long did Matt's battle with cancer last
1: um so he was right we did lots of um vacations and family events and lake trips and all kinds of great things until um june of 2015 so that would have been two and a half years in um he started to see disease progression on his mris Mm -hmm. and um at that point um after they, it was an operable, it was an operable point. So he did go in in July of 2015 and have a second operation. Um, and they were able to again, remove tumor um, at that point and start a different kind of medication. Um, but with this particular disease, they always say after the second surgery, it makes the tumor angry. And usually shortly after the tumor comes back and it gets even more aggressive. So unfortunately at that point, um, he didn't return to work, um, and a lot more, um, he had a lot more physical and effects of the disease. After that, um, he started having, um, issues with the left side of his body, um, with his left arm and things like that. So at that point, um, he kind of chose to stay home and things like that. And we, things kind of slowed down after that. So we were, things took a turn. Um, the, the fight in all of us as a family kind of slowed down, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. we all kind of got a punch in the gut and, uh, I think everybody kind of got numb at that point when we heard inoperable and he was no longer eligible for any more radiation and medications weren't working so it was a, a big turn a big fork in the road for us
2: yeah
0: and your kids at that time are still elementary through high school right so I can imagine there would be a whole variety of emotions and ways they were coping just because their ages were so different. And then like you had mentioned earlier, you have your grieving process while trying to help him and while trying to help these five children. Um, So how did you talk to the kids about it at that point? Did you try to prepare them at all for what was coming or What did you find was best for
2: you?
1: So that was really a struggle because, like you said, all the kids kids were at different ages and stages. Mm -hmm. Um, So conversations had to happen differently and separately with the Mm -hmm. kids.
0: That makes sense. Um,
1: Every kid, you know, as all parents know, every kid in the same family is all very different in the way they process and the way they handle, you know different types of emotions and how, you know, the best way to talk to them or whatever, how they handle stress. Um, So yeah, it was very challenging. You know, some kids wanna talk about it. Some kids don't wanna talk about it. Some kids are deny it. Some kids wanna (laughs) dig deeper into it. Um, So it was all very different. I think a majority of my kids, you know, now looking back, a lot of them were still hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly was grieving and knew what was coming. We were still all, they were all still holding up for hope and we were all still holding up for hope, talking through it. You know, there was no reason to say, no, dad's dying. Yeah. Yeah. There was no reason for us to say that. It I mean, there was obvious that he wasn't doing well, yeah. um, you know, even right up to about about six weeks before he died, we called hospice in, you know, and they had called it the hospital bed. And all of that was happening in our home and the kids saw it and knew it. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of talking about it because it was all very obvious. Um, The littlest one at that point was eight years old. And, you know, she, we had her, you know, out of the house, a large portion of the time, you know, with grandma and, doing other things because there wasn't a lot for her to do. And, you know, we couldn't spend a lot of time with her and she, you know, there wasn't really, you know, she didn't really need to be there. I didn't really want to be there either. It was a very awkward time. And I mean, so the kids knew what was going on, but it was just, I mean, there wasn't a lot of talking, but there was a lot of family around mm-hmm. and, um, we went out to dinner with them a couple times and we could. And yeah, it, I mean, <laughs> a lot of times there was just no words. Mm-hmm. There was just a lot of us sitting around being together.
0: Which at that moment, I think that's the best thing you could have done for them. And they, I'm sure they knew if they wanted to talk about it, you were sitting right there next to them and were more than open to, but
1: yeah, absolutely. Just
0: each other's presence.
1: Yeah. And when he, you know, he was on hospice, um, We had a house full of people, his parents, all of his brothers and sisters, which he's one of five and their family and my sister and my parents were all there in our house. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we had like 30 people there for seven days while he was Mm -hmm. on hospice and my kids, you know, all of our kids were there and we just, we called it the worst party ever because we Mm -hmm. had a house full of people and we were just everybody was there and he'd go in and, you know, talk with him and hang out with him. And we just kind of waited until he was ready. And, you know, our friends would come in and out and our pastor would come in and out and the kids would go in and talk with them and lay with them and whatever. So, I mean, yeah, it was a very involved process, but not a ton of words at that point. Mm -hmm. And then it was interesting because, um, He was, it was seven days that he was without, you know, food or water and just waited and waited. And, um, the hospice nurse said, she said, I think he just, he was agitated. And she said, I think he just really wants you to lay with them. And so I laid down next to him, um, that night and I fell asleep on his chest and she woke me up in the middle of the night and she said, he's passed away oh and that's how he passed away with me laying
2: on his chest oh, oh my
1: goodness
2: so just was,
0: surrounded uh, in love like all these people in this house and
1: mm-hmm. you going
0: to sleep on his chest I mean if you have to pass away then I feel like that would be the best way
2: yes
0: oh so were all those people still there to support you in those days after he passed?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Okay. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you still had all of that family nearby you. So you are obviously grieving. Kids are obviously grieving. And now that he's passed, how? what did you do to help your kids with that while you were going through it at the same time?
1: So one of the one of the fortunate things was, and it sounds terrible to say fortunate was that I was able to my husband was so strong and I had such a strong support group with my community, my friends and my family and my church, my neighbors that I was a, so supported and allowed to grieve the entire process of his disease that I got a lot of my grieving done, not done, but I've had a lot of my grieving worked through while he was alive Mm. so that Mm -hmm. once he passed, I was kind of able to switch into a mode where I was able to then, I mean, not that I didn't grieve still. But able to really take a role on of, okay, now I've got to switch on to taking care of these kiddos and this role of now I'm in charge of taking care of these kids and the house and the finances and be able to support them a little bit more, mm-hmm. be a little bit stronger for them um, and that was all, like I said, due to just the wonderful support that I had and the people that surrounded me so much and held me up so much when he was sick and the, and he held me up so much too. And he was so strong.
0: That makes sense. Um, so
1: you know, I, had, I had my moments, you know, when they were in school and then they walked back in the door and it was time to put on my big girl pants, and, you know. I had moments where I walked in my closet though and laid down on the floor and then I had to get back up and and do my stuff. Um, But the weekends were the hardest, you know, when it was time for, I had to entertain the kids by myself. Um, Being the single mom was very new for me. Um, You know, there wasn't adult time, there wasn't, you know, date nights and things like that. And, you know, sleeping alone in my bed was something I had always dreaded. 'Cause I knew that was coming and things like that. But um I can honestly say that having those kids there saved my butt too. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, you know, they you know we pulled together like nobody's business. Um having them we we you know we clung together like a team. Um so yeah. it was it was amazing. Way that we all pull together. Um, I'm so very thankful that I had them. They are strong, strong kiddos and strong people, and I'm so very, very proud of them.
0: I'm sure they are, and like your friend said too, you just do the next thing.
1: Yeah, you do. Um, but I was very surprised to hear them say that they didn't start breathing until he passed away. That was something that we did very differently.
0: Yeah. Well, and I feel like how, for whatever reason that that happened, the way that it did, it was the way it was meant to happen because that way you could be there for them and be, Mm -hmm. even though you were still grieving and still definitely allowed to have any moment that you needed to have, but you had a little bit of that strength back when they needed it the most.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that journey. I know it's very vulnerable and, A person, that's a personal story, but I really, really think that's going to help so many people because you had so much good advice and so many little nuggets of truth that I feel like could help anyone going through a difficult time, whether that's loss of a loved one or something else. Um, So I really appreciate you sharing that chapter of your life. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And as we know from your intro, your life has kind of gone on to another chapter. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about as time passed how you met your husband Brett um and then share a little bit about him and and how long you two
1: have been married now Um so that's a crazy story <laughs> It's a really crazy story for some reason um I always I again my husband was An amazingly strong man and was really able to share wonderful things with me and accept what was going on with him um, and his disease, and that he was going to pass away with incredible bravery. And he was able to tell me that he did want me to move on and be married again and not be alone, which was an incredible gift. And because of that, for whatever reason, I had in my heart, decided to pray for whoever may come in my life one day. And I said, God, if you've got, you know, somebody in your life, in my life, somebody to come in my life, please just bless them, whatever, you know, and and wherever they are in their life, just please bless them. And that prayer would come to me every once in a while throughout this journey. Um, so probably about six months after he passed, I had gotten connected, um, through Facebook with some folks, um, in the community who had said, you know, I heard your widow, there's a widow's conference in Tampa in the Springs. This Matt had passed away in, um, uh, the summer of 2016 and in the spring of 2017 and said, Hey, um, would you like to join us? I was like, yeah, I guess. And so I said, yeah, I'll go. And my in-laws said, yeah, we'll take the kids. But I decided to go on a solo trip by myself to Clearwater, Florida before. I was gonna go down by myself. Take a few days, never gone on a solo trip before. So I decided to book this trip at this resort. So I flew down by myself and went to this resort and um man that was a that was a trip I had never done anything like that learned a lot about myself when you go somewhere alone you know don't buy a dress that zips up in the back when you go somewhere alone you you don't buy sunscreen that you wipe on yourself you have to get spray sunscreen because you can't get it on the back If you go to a restaurant, they're going to sit you at the bar. If you go alone, they don't want you to sit at the table alone because you look bad. (laughs) All these things as a, as a widow or whatever you learn. Um, but, um, so I went to, uh, went to a restaurant one night by myself, went back to the hotel, was going to have a glass of wine at the bar, ended up at the bar. And there was another gentleman at the bar and he was sitting there eating dinner and there was, another older guy at the bar with some friends or whatever. And he was just drunk as heck obnoxious, obnoxious. And he went over to this other man who was eating dinner at the bar and was like chatting it up with him. And I was annoyed. And I was like, I said to the guy that was eating dinner at the bar, I said, your friend is sure obnoxious. And he's like, that's not my friend. And (laughs) I was like, whatever. And anyway, we started chatting a little bit. Come to find out, he's like, he's like, are you here by yourself? And I was like, yeah, whatever, whatever. Anyway, come to find out he was a widow. Oh, and I said, really? And he said, yeah. And, he said, How? and I said, uh, what did your, what did your wife pass away from? And he said, brain cancer.
0: Oh, you're kidding.
1: And I said, really? And I said, I want to go to your wife pass away from brain cancer. And he said, Oh, well, about nine months ago. And I said,
2: Oh so my really? goodness.
1: And I said, Really? And I said, Yeah. And anyway, well, that happened to be Brett.
0: Oh my gosh. So many so, coincidences.
1: That's crazy. So yeah, so Brett and I met. He was on a solo trip by himself. So Brett was originally from Albuquerque. He was on a solo trip by himself in Clearwater, Florida. We met at a bar, at a hotel. His wife passed away from brain cancer within months of when Matt passed away from brain cancer.
2: Oh my gosh.
1: We had been married the same amount of years. The brain cancer tumor was in the same side of the head as each other.
2: That is crazy. crazy.
1: I know. We were at the same bar at the same time. And yeah, so we met at this bar and we were like, wow, that's really nuts. And then he was like, well, maybe we'll have dinner. Or he was like, well, maybe we'll see each other at the beach. And so anyway, long story short, we met for dinner the next night, had dinner together, exchanged numbers, we chatted, ended up having, uh, he went back to Albuquerque. Um, I went back to Kansas City. Um, He ended up getting a job in Houston. Um, we ended up having a long-distance relationship from Kansas City and Houston. He came back and forth from Kansas City to Houston every other week to visit me for a year. Mm. Um, we ended up going back to Clearwater, and he proposed to me a year later. Aww. And then moved up to Kansas City, and then we got married in September of 2018. Mm-hmm. And he has um three kiddos. All of them are in their 30s now. Mm-hmm. And we just um, recently moved into our, a new house that we built together in April. So, wow. yeah.
0: That story gives me goosebumps. I mean, talk <laughs> about like meant to be... That's crazy. That's I know two people
1: from two different states meeting at a bar in Florida that both are widows that have been married the same amount of years. Who both both people died of the same rare brain cancer. Like, how does that work?
0: Wow, wow. So, what was it like for your children when you decided to tell them that you and Brett were dating? You and Brett were in a relationship how did they handle that after the loss of their dad?
1: It was really hard. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I had hoped the fact that it wasn't like, um, just some guy on a dating app would
2: help. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, and maybe it did, but I just think in general, it was hard. Um, and it was going to be hard no matter what. Um, you know, there was all the questions of, do you love him more than you love dad? And it was just, it was never going to be easy. Thankfully, he was really, really good and really patient, really slow about, you know, working about their his relationship with them and really patient and still is. The fact that we're both widowers makes it so much better about understanding each other and understanding each other's children, and the relationship, and all of that dynamic. But, um, you know, for the kids, and even opening up that, it's hard. It was hard. Um, There's just no way around it. You can tell them, you know, all the things in the whole world about how much you love their dad, and you love, you know, this new person as well, but you know, they're going to have the feelings they're going to have about it. And it's just going to take time and in their heart to decide how they're going to feel about it. And you just go and work through it and trust that they will.
2: Yeah.
1: And like you said, time.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I have one last question for you and it's one that I ask all of my guests. If you as a busy mom of one at home, five of bio kids, eight total kids. If you had a whole day all to yourself, you could go anywhere. You could do anything. Where would you go? And what would you do? Mm,
1: can I be with other people? though? It's totally up
0: to you. You can pick whatever <laughs> you
1: want. I would be with all of my people, all of my family, all my kids, all my extended family, all my sister, sister-in-laws, brother-in-laws, kids, everybody. I would be with everybody and we would just be all together. That's what love I would it. be, just everybody all together love it. at the same time, which is like nearly impossible as everybody is older and has all their own lines and their own schedules and scattered everywhere. I would just love for everybody to be together at the same time.
0: Well, and I feel, I feel like that's very reflective of your story because when you hit those incredibly challenging times, you were surrounded by as many of those people that could be there. So wow. I feel like you have one amazing tribe. Thank you again so much for sharing your story. Before we go today, do you have any other things you would like to share? Any advice with any, for anyone else going through something challenging? Um, Anything else you wanted to highlight that you learned along the way?
1: Yeah, I really, I do. Um, There are some things that um, I learned the hard way um, that I think are super important that I wished I would have known ahead of time. So if I could share any bit of wisdom that somebody else might take away, it would be this. Um, One would be, always be transparent with your needs and your feelings. And that would be with your um, with your spouse, with your loved ones, with your friends, with your family, with anybody that you can. Um, don't be scared, ashamed, afraid. Because um, really that's, it's it's the only way you can really take care of yourself. And you really can't take care of your family and your kids unless you take care of yourself.
2: Absolutely, And
1: that's really what you need to do is be transparent and never be afraid to take care of yourself. And, um, and that's what you have to do. And, and the number one thing too, about that is that's going to get in your way of doing that is feeling guilty. Mm-hmm. And that guilt is going to make you feel like you can't do that. And please, please, please don't feel guilty about that. Um, you've got to be that transparent. And, um, so that would be really the number one thing that I did is not feel guilty about doing that. And that really helped me along the way. The other thing was be, um, just really lean into your friends and your family mm-hmm. and your community and your faith, um, and ask them for help and let them help. Um, it's not a time to shoulder the burden on yourself. There's no prize or accolades or rewards for feeling like you know you're sucking it up um you can't and you're not supposed to when you shouldn't do it on your own any you, by any means um it's a gift to let other people help mm-hmm. and if you can see it as that um you know it's all the better for you and for them the other thing i would say is please take time for yourself alone and you know whether that's during the time where somebody might be sick or, you know, during the disease process or while you're a caregiver or, you know, as a widow, you need that space to breathe. You just really need time. And it's okay. Um, when my husband was terminal and I knew I didn't have a lot of time with him, I still spent time alone. Um, I took a weekend by myself knowing that I didn't have You know, time was limited with him. And that was a tough thing to make peace with in my head because I had guilt with, but I needed it. I needed it and it was okay. And I thank him for allowing me to have that um, because I knew that I wasn't going to get time away from my kids eventually either as being a single mom and coming up soon. So it's okay to have time alone um, and do allow yourself that. Um, and then as a parent, um, please get your legal affairs and your wills and your trusts and all of that stuff in order. Um, that is really, really important. Life insurance, super, super important as a mom, uh, especially stay at home mom, um, your finance, you know, your role is important. And, um, getting all of that t- taken care of is uh is something that needs to be done i know it's something that gets put on the back burner
2: mm-hmm. for sure
1: it is um, something that is very helpful in the long run if it's needed hospice can be a really important wonderful resource and a very good stress reliever during the time of that transition Um, they can be a really, really good um, source of information and a stress relief. So um, if you find a good hospice um, folks, um, they can really make this process, uh, they can be a great advocate for you and for your loved ones. So um, I would highly recommend that they can be people that can really help you through this process and the hospice folks we found um, even Uh, eight years nine years later we're still friends with on facebook and we still keep in touch and they um made our process very very meaningful and uh it was really made it much more um uh, peaceful for all of us so i love that these are just some things that i would recommend that you all do to, to you know to help take care of yourself because uh if you all take care of yourselves as mamas, you are going to be able to take care of your family, and um, that's what's important.
0: Ah, oh, that is wonderful advice, and it's so—it just is everything from the sensible, like yes, you need to get the finances in, you know, the physical steps you need to take to keep everything going for your family, and then just advice on taking time to take care of yourself, I feel like that's just very full circle and wonderful advice. And I thank you so, so much for sharing that because that's really advice all of us moms need to hear too. Definitely, if you're going through something challenging, medical crisis, death of a left one, things like that. But really all of us can take that advice. And Casey, I think back to something you said at the very beginning. Um, I feel like it was when you were talking about when you had received his diagnosis early on that you all decided to make the decision that you were just going to live every day of your life, the way you should have been doing, knowing you had limited time. I feel like that's how all of us should be living our lives every day. And mm-hmm. so I feel like this interview puts a lot in perspective. And, and I know for me, it encourages me to, to think, you know, there is no promise that there's tomorrow. So what else can we do today with our kids, with our family? Um, to really take advantage of each and every day. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So I thank you for sharing all of that because I know it's really impacted me tonight and I know it's gonna really impact a lot of people. So thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you for asking me, I really appreciate it.
0: Hey everyone, I wanted to jump on here real quick and remind you about my books. So Learning to Breathe is our NICU journey from when my twins were born at 24 weeks and just a pound and a half each. And then the NICU Mama Survival Guide is a book I wrote combining my knowledge as a pelvic health PT who's worked in postpartum care for a really long time with my experience as a NICU mom to help moms recover, even though the little one is in the NICU, to help them recover from their pregnancy and delivery. Both books are available on Amazon. Thanks for joining us today on the Mama Sisterhood podcast. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any extraordinary motherhood journeys. Also, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second to rate and review. This helps me reach more moms. See you next week.